You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Uh, For those of you I haven't got a chance to meet, I'm Sean. I am one of the elders, one of the preachers, and uh, we're going to study God's Word together today. We are... Uh, continuing in our series in the book of John, and uh, I made sure I let the previous service know, so I want to tell you we're trying to finish this up by next Christmas, so (laughs) I'm kidding. We'll be done before that, but uh, it's been a good series. If you remember with me back in June, we started into chapter 13, which is this section of chapters that is known as the Upper Room Discourse, um, because it begins in the Upper Room, where Jesus was sharing his his last uh, supper, his last meal here on earth. Uh, although it doesn't, the whole thing doesn't take place there, but it starts with this, this beautiful meal that Jesus had with his disciples um, in this, this upper room. And there we see Jesus uh, serving the disciples. It's incredible because uh, the king of the universe comes to serve. He's also a conquering king. He's a warrior king. He's a saving king, but he's also a servant king. And so we see him washing the disciples' feet. And the disciples even were a little bit freaked out by what was going on. But Jesus says, no, this is the way it's going to be. I want you to know how to love and serve one another. So he served them beautifully that way. And then Jesus predicts his betrayal, um, predicts the betrayal by Judas. And after that, it says that that Judas leaves to go, I assume, prepare for the betrayal. And so what we're left with is the 11 disciples and Jesus. And Jesus then spends the next several chapters um, talking to, encouraging, loving, um, helping, teaching, all of the things that that Jesus did with the disciples. He's doing that over these next few chapters. And I think in part because he knows, again, the time is drawing really, really near. And so uh, we know that he loved them to the end. He wanted them to be prepared. And so he said some amazing things to them. You'll remember some of these things he said with me. He said, don't be troubled. You believe in God. Believe in me also. He's saying, you can trust me. You can trust me. God's trustworthy. So am I. I am God. I'm trustworthy. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come back and take you to be with me. Imagine how comforting that would have been for them. Uh, They've been trying to figure out what does this mean, Jesus, that you're leaving? And he says, look, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to my spot. I'm going to make a spot for you. And then I'm going to come back and get you and bring you to be with me. Amazing comfort. I think this would have been for the disciples. He says, as the father has loved me, so I have loved you. He's saying, listen, I love you. Just like God, we love you. I love you great comfort. And then he says this, this is the most, I think, quoted a couple of verses in this section by the preaching team anyway. He says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus wants them to know things are going to be rough, but I've overcome the world. There's hope. And so Really, it's an amazing section, and it ends, it culminates in John chapter 17, where Jesus has this beautiful prayer. The whole chapter is Jesus praying. And a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first part of his prayer where he's praying for himself to be glorified. And then last week, he prays for uh, the disciples, that is, the apostles. And then today, this week, we are at a turning point in the story because right after this prayer finishes, Jesus is going to be arrested. The trials are going to start. The beatings are going to start. The shame, all of the things that are going to come are are about to to go. But right before all of that happens, Jesus stops and he prays and he prays for you and he prays for me. If you've put your faith in Jesus, your hope in Jesus, then Jesus' prayer today is for you. So this is really an amazing section of scripture when we think about it. Jesus says some incredibly profound things with some amazing consequences for our lives. So what I'd like to do is I want to read the scripture, read the prayer, and then I'll pray. We'll invite the spirit of God to work and and we'll start to unpack it, okay? So we are in John 17, verse 20. 
He says, my prayer is not for them alone. That's for the disciples, for the apostles. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you and they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Word of God for us today. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you, Lord, for this morning. Thank you for the gathering of your people. God, thank you for your beautiful word. Uh, God, I pray right now, I invite you, I ask you, God, would you fill me in an overflowing measure? Father, would the words I speak be your words? God, would you, uh, through these words, bring glory to yourself and would you build your church? Father, I pray that your spirit would move and work in and around and among all of, all of the people here, all of my friends. God, I pray that your spirit would move. And Father, I pray that, um, God, we would see you this morning. We love you. And we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. So John 17, verse 20, he says, my prayer is not for them alone. Again, it's not for the disciples, the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me. This is amazing because because, uh, Jesus is thinking about you. He's thinking about me right before he goes to the cross. And one of the things that makes me feel is incredible gratitude for the apostles, for their faithfulness to Jesus and the message of the gospel. Because after Jesus left earth, he sent his spirit to be in them and carried along their, their work that they were doing, bringing this message of the gospel, scattering it about to the ends of the earth. So I'm thankful the apostles stayed faithful to, to the message, to the work Jesus put before him, before them. Excuse me. I'm also thankful for the generations that have come after the apostles, generation after generation after generation of beautiful, faithful, strong men and women in the faith who have carried this message of the gospel down. Thankful for them. Matt talked about them standing in churches that were so, so old. Thank you to those people for carrying it along. It's also why we here at Grace, I think one of the reasons why we are committed to preaching the way we do through entire books of the Bible, because we know that generations are coming after us. Paul tells the Roman church, Romans 10, 17, faith comes through hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Christ. The spirit of God with Jesus gave them this message and he empowered them to carry it on. And it's come down through generations from his Bible, from his word, through faithful men and women. And so I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the way that this has reached us. And it tells us that Jesus is praying for us, for all of us who have heard the gospel and chosen to believe. And so the first thing Jesus's prayer brings us is Jesus's prayer brings us assurance. Now you might be like, what do you mean? So I want to explain it so that, so that I'm clear here. I'm one of those people, um, and I've shared this before, I'm one of those people that spends way too much time staring in the rearview mirror of my life. And what I see when I look in the rearview mirror it's ugly. I mean, it's not nice. So much uh, sin and shame and pain and garbage and just, just junk. And the problem that I have is, is if I spend time looking there, I can dwell on it. We're told that, uh, in First Peter that the devil is prowling around like a lion looking for someone to devour. And what it is the devil wants to devour is our faith. And so the devil, our enemy and his servants, they spend time whispering things in my ear. 
often they're true. But he whispers things in my ear. You remember when you did this? Do you remember that? And I do. And my problem is, is if I continue to dwell there and I think too much about that stuff, the temptation for me is to believe that the gospel applies to everybody in the world except for me. I'm anticipating that some of you may feel that way at times in your life because we're people. Some of you don't. Praise God, you don't. But some of us, we do struggle with this. And so the, the question then is that if Jesus is praying for us, as Jesus is, is uh, going to God on our behalf, it should bring great assurance. And the answer, the question is why? The, the answer is because Jesus got done just now praying for the disciples, for the apostles. Certainly the 11 left belonged to Jesus, right? Certainly the 11 left. Even Peter, who denied Jesus three times, P Jesus still brings him back. Jesus still reinstates him. Jesus still forgives him. They belonged to Jesus. They were secure in Jesus. And so if Jesus prayed for them that day and he prayed for you and me that day, our salvation is secure in Christ. That's one thing we can bank our lives on. And so the question then becomes is, uh, if we struggle like I do, if we have these things that are whispered, if we spend too, time, too much time looking figuratively in this rearview mirror of our life, what can we do about it? Um, I'm listening to this, this singer right now a little bit. Um, he's a country singer. My cousin introduced me to him. Uh, his name's Jelly Roll. Um, that's the singer, not my cousin. Um, it's really his name. I, I don't think it's his given name, but that's what he goes by. Anyway, he has this great and powerful song called Son of a Sinner. And it starts off like this. Listen to these lyrics. He says this, I never get lonely. I've got these ghosts to keep me company. I took the rear view off of this old Ford so I only see what's in front of me. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? The thing is he's saying is, is I've got these ghosts. I've got all of this constant companions of trash in my life. They're not companions anybody would want to be with, but they're there. And he sees them all the time. And so just a way to even quit focusing on them, figuratively saying in the song, I ripped the mirror off my truck so I can't even see back there anymore. This actually makes me think of the apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippian church, he's talking about how deeply he wants to know Jesus. This is the Apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul who met the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus and audibly spoke with the Lord Jesus. That Apostle Paul is still trying to figure out how to follow and love and serve Jesus, just like we are. Look what he says to the Philippians in Philippians 3. He says, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is exactly what this song is talking about. The fact is, you and I, we can't change the past, but there is hope for our future. There is hope for you and me, and it comes in setting our minds, not on the things we feel, but on the things that we know. So it doesn't matter how you feel about your sin or your shame or your pain. It doesn't matter what you think about your past. It matters what you know about Jesus. And the thing that we know from this text is that Jesus, before he went to the cross, he spent time praying for you. He spent time praying for me. And we can count on the gospel in our lives. It should bring incredible assurance to us. Look what he's praying for. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be 
in us. Jesus wants uh, the church to come together. Just like Jesus is one with the Father and the Father is one with Jesus, Jesus wants to be one with the church. Ultimately, what Jesus' prayer brings for us, Jesus' prayer brings, brings unity. And if you look at the world around us, outside of Christ, it is prone to chaos. It's been that way ever since Genesis chapter 3 when sin entered the world. Because when sin entered the world, sin came into a world that was ordered, that was perfect. And it completely broke it. It made it scarred. It made it shattered. It made it fractured. It made it not unified. And when you look around us, you see this all over the place. Even now in our day and age, you see it in culture. You see it in religions and ideologies and politics. There's constant disunity. I heard a political commentator say earlier this week um, that uh, disunity is big money for politicians. Scary. The thing is, we sometimes see uh, this disunity seep not just into culture. We see it seep its way into the church. And Jesus hates that because he wants the church to be, he wants the church to be unified. He's praying for us. He's praying for, for, for all of us that we would be unified. And so before I talk about unity and what that looks like, what it is and what it isn't, I want to look at one more thing here really quick that Jesus says. He says something amazing about how he's going to achieve this unity. Look what he says. Verse 22, he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are in complete unity. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me. What Jesus is saying here, Jesus's prayer means is that we should be marveling at and sharing in Jesus's glory. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> Let's talk. Let's talk. What does that mean that we marvel at and we share in his glory? Well, to marvel at Jesus's glory is simply to be in complete awe of his beauty, to be just completely awestruck with his power, with his greatness, and with his supreme worth. One of the places that we see Jesus's glory is inside of creation. Psalm 19.1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. One place that we see um, the glory of Christ on display is in creation. When was the last time you stopped and just stared at a painted sky in the morning or the evening and thought, God, you are altogether glorious. When was the last time you looked around at the mountains? Big, beautiful, powerful, majestic mountains that go shoot up, you know, miles into the sky. God made all of that. Fascinating creatures. Look at the colors on this fish. It's unbelievable. God could have made them all look like a cod. <laughs> he didn't, thankfully. I mean, fish and chips are great, but this fish is much nicer to look at powerful animals that he made incredible creatures that were made in the image of God we marvel at the glory of Christ it's summertime you can get out and see stars when there's not too much smoke right now beautiful stars the God of the universe created the universe the Bible tells us he called out these stars by name that's how big he is we marvel at the glory of Christ and the things that he had made. We also marvel at the glory of who Jesus is and how he lived on earth as a man. Remember with me back in John 1, we looked at this at the beginning of our series. John 1, 14, it says the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and full of truth. One of the reasons the gospel writers wrote their accounts of the life of Jesus was because how Jesus lived on earth is displaying his glory to all of humanity. 
And so as we read the gospels, as we study the gospels, we see Jesus's glory on display. And so we see Jesus's glory on display in the compassion that he had on hungry crowds. And he, when he fed them from a couple of fish and, and a couple of loaves of bread, fed thousands of people because of his compassion. We see Jesus's glory on display in the compassion that he had for Mary and Martha when they were grieving their brother Lazarus and his death. Even though Jesus knew he was going to bring Lazarus back to life, he still had compassion for them. The glory of Christ on display. We see the glory of Christ on display in his kindness to a broken woman who came to a well on one hot afternoon. She brought with her empty jars and a life that was full of sin and shame and trash. She just wanted something to drink. And she left finding life with the Savior, the glory of Christ on display. We see the glory of Christ on display when the wind and the waves stirred up so significantly that the disciples thought they were going to die. And Jesus, the creator, speaks, creation obeys, and the wind and the waves immediately go quiet. The glory of Christ on display. We marvel at the glory of Jesus. But then he says something crazy. Remember what he said? He said, I have given them the glory that you gave me. What he says to us is that we share in his glory. Now you might be going, what are you talking about? Is that even possible? I mean, Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. What that is saying is that God says, I will not share my glory to anything or anyone uh, spiritual or material that demands worship. And so God will not share his glory with, with anything like that. But Jesus just specifically said that he has given some of his glory to us, to those of us who will believe, some of the glory that God gave him. And in doing so, he is achieving unity in us. And so what does that look like? Well, it's the gospel of Jesus. It's his death, burial, and resurrection by the power of his spirit. And by offering that to us, he's offering something to us. And when you and I put our faith in that, in that Jesus, in the person of Jesus, he comes into our life. His spirit comes and dwells with us and in us. And in that way, his glory is in us. Paul, when he was writing to the Corinthian church, he talked about the fact that without Christ in our lives, we're totally blindfolded. We can't see. We can't see. We can't hear. We can't understand. Our hearts can't see, but there's hope. Look what he says to them in 2 Corinthians 3. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil, this blindfold is taken away. Now the Lord is the spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. He says, and we all who with unveiled faces, now catch this, we contemplate the Lord's glory. That is, we marvel at the glory of Christ and we are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Friends, the more that our lives are changed by the power of the gospel, the more that we look like Jesus, the more we reflect his glory into the world around us. The more that we love and serve those around us, the more we display the glory of Christ and share in his glory. The more that we help and love and encourage and bless the people around us, the more we glory and, and share in Jesus's glory. It's an amazing promise that Jesus makes here. And he says that it brings us, it brings us unity. Okay, so I want to talk about unity. And what does unity mean? What does it look like? Unity, a simple definition would be that unity simply means coming together to be joined as a whole or as one right? But it doesn't mean that we will be in complete agreement on everything all the time. We just won't be. And so the question then becomes is where should we find unity? Because Jesus here is saying that we find unity in the church. We find unity among brothers and sisters of the faith. And so the question is, is do we always find unity with all brothers and sisters in the faith? And the answer is yes. 
if those people, those brothers and sisters in the faith are actually followers of this Jesus, not some other Jesus, not some other counterfeit, not some other thing that they're doing playing uh, uh, games with words. No, this Jesus, this gospel, if they're followers of that, then yes, we, we absolutely find unity with them because not everybody who claims to be a follower of Jesus or claims to be a Christian is actually a Christian. And not every church that says they follow Jesus are actually followers of Christ, of this Jesus. And so the question then becomes, how do we know? Because aren't we told inside of scripture that we're not supposed to judge? Yes, we are told that. We're also told to judge. <laughs> Confused? Let's take a look at what Paul says to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 5. He says, but now I am writing to you that you must not associate, that is, you must not have any unity with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Have no unity with those people. But he goes on, he says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? So church, we are not to judge those outside the church. People that do not claim to be Christians, that judgment is left to God. That is not our job. That's not what he's saying. But then he goes on, he says, are you not to judge those inside the church? We are supposed to judge those inside the church. He says, God will judge those outside, expel the wicked person from among you. So what Paul's saying here, he's saying that we can and we should look at anybody who claims to be a Christian, claims to be part of the community of God and, and evaluate or judge them in the way that we evaluate or judge their, their behavior. So we look at how they act. We look at how they live. We look at the things they say. We look at the things they celebrate, the things that they embrace, the things that they teach. And we, we look at them and we, we, we judge them carefully. That's what our job is that Paul is saying here. We judge them very, very carefully because um, the fact is, is that if people are saying they're a Christian or if churches are saying they're a Christian, but they are embracing and celebrating sin, if they are teaching and, and, and doing things that are directly contrary to God's word, we can't have any unity with them. That We just can't. We shouldn't. But here's the thing with that. Like Jesus, our Savior and our God, who came to love and to serve and to teach and to help and to even die for us while we were still sinners, while we were hostile to God, as Romans 8 says, while we were his enemies, he died for us. And so one of the things that we need to be mindful of as a church is as we judge, as we evaluate, as we, as we look around, we should be also doing all that we can to follow Jesus' example, to love, to serve, to help, to teach, to encourage, to point toward Jesus. Paul's not saying to look around at the church and find people that don't sin, because if that was the case, then vacate the building, right? We all got to get out. Okay, but church, listen to me carefully. You are not sinners. If you are in Christ, you are saints. That's who you are. Live out of that identity. That's who you are in Christ. You're a new creation. And so live out of that identity. The list that Paul puts up here of some of the sins, other lists that are, you can find elsewhere in the Bible. The fact is some of those things apply to me. Lots of those things apply to many of you as well at points in your life. So it's not that we're looking for people that don't sin. We're looking for people that sin and repent and turn toward Jesus. We're looking for people that trust, trust Jesus. And in the meantime, we pray for them. We love them. We encourage them. We bless them. We help them. We serve them. All of the things that we see Jesus doing for us while we were still his enemies. That's what we do, church. That's what we're about. The truth is that the gospel of Jesus takes enemies and he makes them family. He makes them family. So where can we find unity then? Um, what about common interests? I mean, it's football season. So doesn't it make sense that all of us 49er fans should hate all Seahawks fans? 
Yes, we should. We absolutely should. But seriously, what about the common interests that unite us in our, in our lives, like hobbies or sports teams? Or what about politics? Yee. Shouldn't we find some, you know, unity around political ideas and ideologies? The truth is you, you might find deep connections, even really, really good friends, sometimes deep lifelong friends in some of these areas. But the kind of unity that Jesus is praying for here goes way deeper than something as flimsy as a football jersey. Way deeper. Jesus isn't talking about these sort of superficialities of life. Church, we do not unite around a political party or a ballot box or a basketball team. We don't. We unite around the gospel of Jesus. We unite around his death on a cross. We unite around an empty tomb. We unite around a risen Lord. We do it all by the power of the spirit of God himself working and moving and helping in our lives to bring us together as a family of God. We unite around the word of God in its entirety as God's holy teachings, as a way for us to know who God is, as a way for us to know who we are, how to relate to God, and how we can know how to relate to one another. We unite around those things. Church, we unite around the hope that this world is not all that there is. And even though Satan, who is the prince of this world, has some power, has some reign right now, he does not have ultimate authority. That ultimate authority belongs to Jesus alone. And so there's hope for us. It doesn't matter how bad the world gets here. There's disease, there's sickness, there's illness, there's pain, there's, there's natural disasters, there's all kinds of wrecked relationships, there's problems in this world. Take heart. Jesus has overcome the world. He prayed for you then. He's praying for you now. He sits at the right hand of the Father in all of authority, interceding for you and for me right now. And so church, we unite around those things because one day Jesus is going to come back for us. One day Jesus is going to bring us home to be with him. And so the problems we face today, scripture calls them light and momentary problems, troubles. They don't feel light and momentary sometimes, but the truth is in light of eternity they are because there is hope for the future no matter how bad it looks here on earth. Politicians and politics will, will come and go. Sports teams, they're going to win or lose. Blazer fans, you know that's true. Um, <laughs> your abilities to do your favorite hobby can be taken away from you. That, that's just the reality. But Jesus, the beauty and the glory of, and the truth of his gospel is the only thing that remains. It's the only thing that will last forever. It's the only thing we can completely bank our lives on because it's true. It applies to all of us if you put your faith and your hope in Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is true. And so unity matters. Unity is important. Look what Jesus says about it here at the end. One more thing. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Our unity is witness to and proof of God's love in the world. The unity that we share among the body of believers is a giant billboard to the world that God loves them. And one of the reasons I think that's true is because uh, the world doesn't see anything like this anywhere else inside of the world. Because what we are as the believers, as a family of God, excuse me, we are a family, a group of people with all different kinds of backgrounds. We are a family of people with all different kinds of socioeconomic statuses. We're, we're a people of different educational levels and different ethnicities. Many of the things that the world uses to divide us all up. None of that in the gospel, in the kingdom of God, means anything. 
It does matter that we come from all nations and all tribes and tongues because that shows the glory of Christ on display. So that matters. We celebrate that. But none of these other things, the peripheries, they don't, they don't really mean anything. Many of the things that the world wants to separate us around, they look at it and they're like, well, if they see in the church that there's not any unity, then what's really the difference there? Well, the difference is, is we are a family of people who come together to truly love and care for one another. We are a family of people who come together to truly love and care for the, the world around us in our communities. We are a family of people who hate cancel culture because it leaves no room for redemption. We are a, we're a family of people who walk with each other in our failures and our struggles, and we celebrate and rejoice at each other's successes. That's what the family of God looks like. Worship team, would you come up now? I want to tell you a quick story to end this here. My daughter um, and my son-in-law uh, have worked with Young Life for uh, a couple years now. And earlier this uh, year, earlier this summer, they were in a, uh, or at a camp. Actually, it was Washington Family Ranch, the same camp that our Young Lives team went to. And so they're at this camp over there, and um, kind of like they did at, at the Johnny and Friends camp, this camp also had a talent show one night for the students. And so there's hundreds and hundreds of students there. Um, at this camp, and they were doing different talents that they were displaying. I think they had a sword swallower, and they didn't. I don't, I don't think, they, I don't know what they had. Um, but these kids are displaying their talents. And at this camp, there was also um, students that, that had, um, they were affected by disability, or they had some disabilities, uh, intellectual and physical disabilities. And so uh, this one young man, he wanted to display his talent. He couldn't even get up the stairs. And so his leader literally picked him up, carried him up the stairs, and set him down on the piano bench there, like our friend Joel. And this young man, he started to play. Now, it, it wasn't like a concert-like piece. It, it wasn't like, oh my gosh, <laughs> this, this is the greatest piano playing I've ever heard. It wasn't. But this young man, with what he could do, with what he offered to the community of God, he played a simple piano song. And at the end of the song, my daughter and my son-in-law told me, there was this long pause. And then suddenly, hundreds and hundreds of students leapt to their feet in thunderous applause. They leapt to their feet, celebrating as a family of God what this young man offered. Even though, again, was it the best piano piece they'd ever heard? No, but it was glorious. And it was wonderful. That's what the family of God looks like. That's what unity in the family of God looks like. And so that's why we celebrate. It's why we celebrate uh, Matt and Sharon Moorman, some of our missionaries who are overseas right now. All of our missionaries, actually. We celebrate what they're doing. Matt and Sharon serve in Slovenia, the young people there. They help them to, to come to know Jesus. We celebrate our young wives and our uh, Johnny and friends and our Latvia team who went out to serve the kingdom of God. We rejoice and we celebrate when I hear reports from Texas. I've got two brothers down there, my brother Billy Cash. I got another brother that I just met, Preston. My brothers and I, we met him in Israel. Great dude, both pastors down in Texas. When they send me reports of things that are going on, we celebrate. We worship and we get excited. We celebrate that we can partner with dozens of other, or a dozen other churches with hundreds of people in our community with, with Service County that happened yesterday. We celebrate. This is why, friends, when we see and we hear about people in our family, in our community being set free from sins and addictions and shame and skeletons are in our closet, we don't cancel them. 
We don't dismiss them. We don't shut them down. We applaud in thunderous applause because our brothers and sisters who have been walking in bondage have been set free. We celebrate that. We help them to learn to stop sinning. We help them to learn to love and serve Jesus better as they help us. That's what the family of God looks like in unity. So what I want to do this morning, if you are able, please come to your feet. I want to worship this great God and Savior of ours in unity as family. Let's get it. I got a text from my wife while I was preaching. Not that I was going to look at my phone, but she's like, slow down. I know, baby. I know. <laughs> I get excited. I get, I get excited. So I know, sweetheart. <laughs> Next time, maybe. <laughs> Even Sarah's like, bro, you called us up so early. I know. I'm sorry. But your passion, though, my, my it, it just comes across that we feel it. Yeah. And we love it. Yeah. Thank you, Sean, for the message today. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. A couple of things. Number one, if you need prayer for anything, we've got prayer teams up on the side, but at least we've got one over here. Come to any of us on the stage. We'd love to pray with you if you need prayer for anything. A couple of questions. Number one, there may be some in the room here who have not yet found unity with Jesus. Maybe you've never met the Lord Jesus. Now, we would love to introduce you to him and love to talk with you about what does it mean to know him. So if you're in that situation, come talk to one of our prayer teams. Come again, talk to one of us. It's also possible that somebody in the room here is recognizing and thinking this morning the reality that, that there's some brothers and sisters in the faith in their life that they don't have unity with. Maybe what needs to happen for you today or this week is you need to begin to pray and seek the Lord and figure out how can we change that? God, maybe you, maybe you need to, to go seek forgiveness because you've wronged somebody and you need to repent and you need to, to seek reconciliation with them if that's possible. It's also possible maybe somebody's wronged you and maybe you need to just try again. Can we have a conversation? Can we just talk? Because the unity of the, of the family of God in Christ is one of the most important things that we have. It's one of the greatest blessings we have as the church. And so with that in mind, I want to I read this to you. This is Ephesians 4. Uh, out of the translation, the message, Eugene Peterson's great translation, um, because I just like the way he puts some of the things here. He says this, in light of, this is my charge to you today, in light of this, in light of all of this, let's pretend he's saying in light of everything we've talked about this morning, okay? Here's what I want you to do. While I'm locked up here, a prisoner for the master, I want you to get out there and walk. Better yet, run. Run on the road that God called you to travel. I don't want any of you sitting around on your hands. I don't want anyone strolling off down some path that goes nowhere. And mark that you do this with humility and discipline, not in fits and starts, but steadily pouring yourselves out for each other in acts of love, alert at noticing differences and quick at mending fences. You were all called to travel on the same road in the same direction. So stay together both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master. You have one faith. You have one baptism. You have one God and father of all who rules over all, who works through all and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. I love you, Grace. I hope you have a great week. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.